God is so big, so awesome, so majestic, so mind-boggling. I love how he, when, when Job finally got his answer and he said, I want to talk to God. And God says, all right, you want to talk to me? What gives you the right? Were you there when I laid out the perimeters of the earth? And he goes into this lengthy dissertation and when God gets through, Job says, no, I'm good. Do you really want to hear from God? Because sometimes God tells us stuff that we don't want to hear. You, we may live in a day and age where we have easy preaching to go with hard living that is easy to take and it's palatable and it's, it's, it's stirring and it's motivating, but I'm going to tell you, we don't have a God like that. He will speak if we will listen. And he says, here's how a prayer should start. Just loving on God for who He is. For nothing else than just His splendor. Just His deity. Just His sovereignty. Just His omnipotence. Well, I'll move on. And the second thing we looked at in the previous sermon was not only must prayer be bathed in adoration, but it must be rooted in pure motives. Here's what he says. Our Father who are in heaven, your name is so holy. I issued you a challenge two weeks ago on a Saturday night. I said, why don't you just go and pray and pray for no other reason than to wear out every adjective that you can find to describe God. Your name is so holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We looked at that and how... Are our prayers really rooted in pure motives? The Bible says that if we would set our heart to please God, that He would give us the desires of our heart. He didn't say He'd give us the desires of our flesh. The desires of our heart. Verse 10, we talked about how our prayer, is our prayer really rooted in pure motives? I'm not going to get into that because it was pretty lengthy how to examine our motives. Is this a pure prayer that I'm praying? Or is there a selfishness to it? Is there a selfish bend to it? And so then I want to pick up tonight and continue to unpack this for us. And, and we move now from the pure motives to where he says, not only let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I, I just got to say this before I move on because most of our prayer is trying to get earth to heaven instead of heaven to earth. Lord, I'm trying to build my little kingdom down here. Now, I need you to do in heaven what I need on earth. Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I, 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 you don't have to be very smart to realize. You don't have to be very observant to realize that I don't believe the will of God is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe one of the reasons why is because the church is settled for being earth bound when we were wired to be heaven bound. I believe we're, settled with, we're settling with the attributes of humanity of what we can do. Listen, if you will only do what you can do, you will only get what you can have. You'll only have what you can, if you can only do, if you can only do what you can do, then you will only have what you can get. Your ability, your strength, your might, 
And then he moves on and he says the, the, the third point here is that our prayer must be revealed. It must reveal our daily needs. Now notice that this is the third thing in this model. Now we're getting a supplication. Now we're getting to what I need. When most of our prayer starts with what I need and ends with what I need. And then we, when God doesn't answer in our time, we come back and we say, God, what's up? Have you forgot about me? And then we like to be spiritual and say, well, you know, it's kind of like in the book of Daniel. I guess the prince of Persia, the devil, resisted him. And he's just hung up. No, maybe he's hung up in our selfishness. Did I just say that? Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in my life as, it won't, as you want it to be done in heaven. Now, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. My supplication, my need. What is the daily bread? We're so good that we normally don't have to pray about our daily bread. Most Americans do not have to pray for their daily bread. Because even if they're not out making it on their own, there's some organization or somebody to help them. And I'm not putting that down. But I'm telling you in Haiti, they got to depend on God for their daily bread. Our first trip to Haiti, uh, we got there and uh, <clears throat> it had been a whole day and I was hungry. I, I, actually, I was hungry. You know there's a difference in being hungry and hungry. And we had went all day, me and Pastor Ralph, and uh, boy, we made it in that evening at the orphanage where we were staying, and uh, boy, we were, we, we were ready to eat. And I made it to that table, and I mean, there was a really nice plate of pasta there before me. And uh, I was, boy, I, this looks great. It looks great. And, uh, boy, I leaned into it and commenced to eating. And I am telling you, that was the worst meal I ever put in my mouth. Matter of fact, I took about six bites is probably all I could get down. It was some kind of hot tuna or something, like hot, mixed in those noodles and I, I, it was just bad. I just settled for some crackers I had in my backpack after that. We got ready to go to bed that night, and Pastor Ralph went ahead and uh, paid for the rest of our trip. And when we came back the next day for lunch, I'm telling you, it's some of the best food I ever had in my life. I mean, we had fried chicken. We had fried plantains. I mean, it was... It was rice, it was gravy. I mean, it, I'm telling you, it was like a king's banquet. The moral of the story that we figured out is that you need to pay when you get there. Because on our first day, they were feeding us out of their ability. But after we gave them money, they were feeding us out of our ability. See, we don't, we don't have to really focus on that a whole lot. We take it for granted. Matter of fact, 
When you hear somebody say to you in the morning, what are you doing? Well, I'm praying about what God wants me to do today. Most people think they're nuts. They're super spiritual religious zealots. What are you doing? I'm asking God which way He wants me to go, right or left. Really? Just drive. Well, you know, because we really don't have to depend on God for our daily bread. Amen? Bless God, we're Americans. We can do it ourselves. And I believe that's the mentality that has spilled over into our church. Therefore, we're only getting what we can give. But God. But God, when He's all that you got, He is all that you need. He is sufficient. He is omnipotent. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than we could ever ask or ever think of. And our God shall supply all of our needs. Our needs, not our wants. Our needs according to His riches and glory. You heard me share, I think, last Sunday morning about the ministerial manipulation. Look, God does not need us to manipulate His people to teach them to give. He needs us to pray and believe that He can move heaven and earth. And if He can move heaven and earth and keep the solar system from colliding against one another, then He is able to speak to our financial needs, our daily bread needs, and trust Him for the miracle. You know, our first need, though, of our daily bread is laid out in the next verse. He says, and and as I'm giving you that daily bread, forgive us of our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. What he does here in this passage of Scripture is force us to focus on forgiveness. Jesus recognizes the greatest need of a person, no matter what nation they're part of, no matter what language they speak, no matter what color their skin is, the greatest need of humanity is God's forgiveness. And what he tells them is when you're praying, reflect on my forgiveness. Reflect on the debt that I have forgiven you. I remember I, there used to be this, uh, man, when, when, when music first started kind of getting modern, you know, it, well, it, was a, it was known as praise and worship back in the 90s. And there was this little chorus that came out and it said, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song. Praise his name all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt. That I could never pay. Could never pay. Many of you out there today are focusing on paying off debts. Paying off a credit card. You're trying to get that thing paid off from last Christmas because this Christmas is around the corner. Paying off this debt. Paying off that debt. Matter of fact, we're believing God next year for a plan to pay off the debt for the North Campus so that we don't have that hanging over us. We focus on paying off this debt. Look, we owed a debt that we could not pay. All the work in the world could not pay the debt of our sin and our trespasses. But Jesus, the wages of sin is death. The paycheck of sin is death. And every one of us are born with an indebtedness that we cannot erase but God. 
God. It wasn't a plan B because John said, the revelator, he said, Behold, I saw the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. We're entering that season soon in December where we honor the day that heaven came to earth to pay a debt for us that we could not pay. And Jesus says, if you're going to be my children, then when you're praying for your daily bread, you need to remember I met the greatest need you ever had, and it was to roll away the sins. I'm telling you, the church, the church in America has forgotten how sinful we are. How sinful we were. We've been born again so long that we forgot about the sin that he wiped away from our account. I love what it says in Colossians. that he, having taken away the handwritings of requirement that were contrary against us and nailed it to the cross and having disarmed the principalities and the powers of the air that I might be set free. Forgive us. Reflect on that forgiveness. I was speaking to a young college student last Sunday. She visited our campus and she asked me this question. She said, I've been attending a church, young college student. And she said, "Uh, I'm looking for a new one. She said, I attended a church where our worship leaders were homosexuals. And when I asked my pastor about it, She said, well, you're just not quite spiritual enough to understand it. But when you become more spiritual, you will understand that it's okay. And she looked at me, a young college student, and said, how can what God says is not okay ever be okay? I said, I hope you never get that spiritual. She said, what do you believe? I said, I believe a homosexual is welcome to come in here and worship with us. And we want to love them and love them and love them and love them and love them. But there is no difference in someone living in any kind of open sin that refuses to do what God calls is right. Forgiveness. You see, we have arrived in denominations and religion has arrived to the point that we have just about made it to where we don't have to have forgiveness. It's called Christianity without the cross. Well, let me get on or I'll never finish this. Jesus knew about this because many times, like in Luke 5, as Pastor Ralph's sermon says, when four of a kind beats a full house, when they let this paralytic down through the roof, his four friends, because they couldn't get into the house, Jesus looked up and said, your sins have been forgiven. Many times He said, your sins have been forgiven you, and they were healed. When we are born again, the penalty of sin is removed once and for all. It is taken away, but the presence of sin is still a reality that we have to deal with. Can I say that again? When we are born again and we give our heart to Jesus, the penalty of sin is taken away. For the wages of sin is death, as I said earlier. The paycheck of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The debt was paid. He washed it away. But the presence of sin sin is still a reality. That's why Paul said you need to die to yourself every single day. You know the difference between a living sacrifice in Roman 12 
Romans 12 and, and 1 in the book of Leviticus? Is the one in Leviticus the sacrifices had the blood drained out of their body. It was laid upon the brazen altar. It was stretched out on the altar and it was dead. The problem with a living sacrifice is we still have a beating in our heart. We still have our blood pumping through our body. And we can get up and run off of the altar when we are enticed and drawn away by sin. I'm telling you, my brothers and sisters of Christ, when we go to God in prayer, we need to thank Him for removing the handwritings of requirement that was contrary against us. And we need to thank Him for making a way that we are able to walk in the presence of sin but not be overcome by it. Even though the new nature of our flesh is constantly dragging us back, the key point of this prayer that many people miss is that Jesus was actually praying and teaching us, teaching us to pray and saying, forgive us of our sins. In verses 14 through 15, which we did not read, but it says this, for if you cannot forgive men when they sin against you, then your heavenly Father will also not forgive you. But if you do, or he'll forgive you, but if you do not forgive men their sins, then your Father will not forgive your sins. That doesn't mean that you can earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people. That's not what that means. But what it literally means here, what it literally saying is that God's forgiveness will reflect when you forgive other people. What he says in 14 and 15 is not go forgive somebody and then you're going to be forgiven. What he is saying is that if your handwriting or requirement was canceled away, taken away, then all of a sudden you're going to realize that you have been set free by the power of the one who liberated you and you're also going to let that flow downhill. There was a parable about it in the Bible. One man had, had a debt he couldn't pay in the the, the master went and forgave him the debt. And another man had debt, about the third of what his was. And he went and seized him and said, pay me what you owe me. And when he couldn't pay him, he began to beat him and torture him and put him in prison. And when the master found out about it, he came and said, you're an evil man. I forgave you way more than that. And yet you went and reciprocated Unforgiveness. What is the greatest mark of a Christian? Forgiveness. Inside and out. Somebody tells me I can't forgive. I say, you're absolutely correct. You don't have the ability. It's a supernatural component. You can't do that in the natural. But in the spirit, things that are impossible in the natural become possible with God. It's a difference in you saying, I can't forgive and I won't forgive. I can't forgive or I won't forgive is two different things. It's, look, God knows how hard it is to forgive somebody who's done you wrong because we've done God that much wrong. He identifies with that. He says, whenever you begin to pray, remember how much I've forgiven you and then forgive all those around you. You must understand your sin against a holy God was so horrific, yet no man will ever sin against you and me 
as much as we've sinned against God. I, I'll just be honest. One of the one of the when I'm discouraged, one of the strongest marks in my life that I'm a believer is my ability to forgive. Well, I'm telling you, I've got a lot of reasons to harbor bitterness. Good ones in the flesh. But God demonstrated His love towards me that when I was helpless, sinful, and broken, He forgave me. And He says, all I want you to do is to reciprocate the same to other people. Your willingness to forgive is not proof of your salvation. Your willingness to forgive others is proof of your salvation and not a prerequisite. Let me say that again. Your willingness to forgive other people is proof that you're born again. It's not a prerequisite to be born again. Because you can't forgive in the natural. You can't forgive... In the flesh. An eye for an eye was justified in the Old Testament. But God in the New Testament. Jesus demonstrated a different consequence for the adulterer in the New Testament than they did under the law of Moses. They drugged the woman having been caught in adultery before Jesus laid him at his feet and says, Moses said we can kill her, but what do you say? Jesus says, I say unto you, let the one who has no sin within him throw the first stone. And the Bible says they threw their stones down and walked off one by one. And Jesus looked at a woman whose life was so broken, so scarred by sin, that she had been drugged out of the bed of adultery naked, laying in the streets, and said, Neither do I forgive you, but now don't go do that anymore. Christianity has appointed itself as the judge and the jury when we're supposed to be the conduits of His grace. Forgiveness is... Proof that you're born again. Not a prerequisite. An unwillingness to forgive others is directly connected with an inability to receive forgiveness from God. Can you really grasp the kind of forgiveness He has for you? Yet, I don't think we can. I don't think we've grasped it if we can't share it. Here's what He says. When you pray, pray this way. Give us our daily bread. What is our daily bread? First of all, our greatest need is to be forgiven. Because without that need of forgiveness being met in our life, we're going to perish and be separated from Jesus Christ for all of eternity. That is our first need. After that, it is to reciprocate it on down the line. We have to respond to what God is leading us to do. The Bible teaches us here, He says, and then, He says, and don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This part of the prayer that Jesus has given us as a model is interesting. May seem a little contradictive when you see this and you read it where it says, Lead us not into temptation, because the Bible teaches in James 1 and 13 that God doesn't lead a man into temptation. The Bible says, When you are tested in James 1 and 13, you may be tested by God, but God does not tempt anyone. 
Matter of fact, it goes on and describes it in James 1 and 13 and 14 that you are tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires of our flesh. The interesting thing is the Greek language is such a unique tool, such a unique language. And right here, it is translated in two different ways. It can be translated to mean a test or a trial which is what he says in James 1 and 13, that God may test you. But then in James 1 and 13, he says, but when you're tempted, don't say that you're drawn away. The other is, it can equally mean enticement or temptation. The proper translation depends on the context in which the word is used. Both meanings are found in James chapter 2. It is translated, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Since we know that we don't rejoice when we've succumbed to temptation, I mean, do you want to stand up and shout and say, well, praise the Lord, I gave in to pornography tonight. Praise the Lord, I had an adulterous relationship. I mean, when we're drawn away by our own desires, that's nothing to praise God about. But he says, when you count it joy and praise me when they persecute you. Count it joy and praise me when you're walking fiery trials, knowing that the testing of your faith shall produce perseverance. There's two different things here completely, but here's what he is saying in the model prayer. He is saying here, and bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And if you look this word up here in the Greek, it's literally meaning in the, the, the translation of temptation, it is meaning trial. But then when you look it up in the next verse, in this same verse, the next sentence, where it says, but deliver us from evil, he is saying, deliver me from the temptation. Which means to be enticed or drawn away. Let no man say when he is tempted that he is being tempted by God. This time in reference refers to being drawn away. These two translations, trials and enticements, are so closely related because usually when we face a trial or an ordeal, you're tempted to do the wrong thing. You're tempted to do the wrong thing. I had been out on outreach today, had a glorious time in the apartment complex on the north end of town. Took 25, 26 college students into an apartment complex, let them love on the kids in that complex. I'm just telling you, just a glorious moment. I thought, God, you're so awesome. Lance had another 25 in another complex, and we met back up here and said, hey, I, I, I'm going to run home for a minute. I'll be right back. And I stopped at a red light, and, and I didn't go immediately. And I got the biggest horn cussing I ever, I, I've got in a long time. I mean, you know when somebody's cussing you with their horn. I mean, like, bump, bump means, hey, you dozing off up there or something, get on about your business. But I'm telling you, I mean, just going on and on. I mean, I mean, just the spirit was jerked off of me in that moment. I would just pull over and say, what's wrong with you? I mean, just like that, went from being up, I mean, just in the presence of God and just, I was sitting at that light just basking on what God had just done, actually. I mean, I'm just telling you, I was like, God, I was sitting there thinking, God, God, this is just so awesome. 
had my five-year-old girl, I mean, right there in the back seat. I mean, out there living missionally. I thought, my good, isn't this good stuff? Loving on people. Being the hands and feet of Jesus. Reminiscing about it at the red light, and I get cussed out by a horn. And all of a sudden, I was wanting to be led into temptation. When you're led into temptation, you have the propensity, and I have the propensity to do what's not right. I'll never forget, uh, all I ever wanted to be was a farmer. And uh, had the chance and was working construction and trying to do a little bit of and trying to get going and do all of that. And, and uh, there really wasn't any money in row crops, so I decided, well, I'm going to put our home place and a bunch of cows there. And so I went and did that and... and uh, a, a, a piece of property behind us was sold, and uh, it was sold for uh, to hunt on. And uh, they just kept messing with the fence. They'd cut the fence or make it where it wouldn't be hot or one thing. I mean, I, I had cows out left and right all the time. And I'll never forget one day I was back there on the back and I was just so mad. Had already surrendered to the ministry. And I was back there and uh, they had cut the fence and they all got out, put them all back in, fixed the fence. They had no reason, like they were not connected. It wasn't like they had to cross our property. I don't know, I guess I made them mad. I can't imagine that. But for some reason, it, this was happening and and I'll never forget, I was, I was kneeling down, just me and the Lord, and I fixed that fence, and I said, you know what? I said to myself, self, those guys better be glad I'm not the man I used to be. Or I'd go get me a, several cases of roofing tax and put it in their road, not fix them. And... As though God was speaking through a bullhorn, he said, no, son, you need to be glad you're not the man you used to be. Not them. You need to be glad you're not the man you used to be. Right there kneeling down in the middle of a pasture, God smote my heart and said, God, you have forgiven me of so much. You have forgiven me of so much. Help me to be able to forgive others. Thank you, Lord, from diverting me from doing something stupid. Is anybody picking up what I'm putting down? And he said, when you pray, pray this way. Give me some adoration. Give me some Give me some mind. Not thanksgiving. Because that puts you in the equation. You know there's a difference. And that's hard for me. Because every time I try to pray in adoration, it ends up folding over or spilling over into thanksgiving. But that puts me at the center of it again. A adoration doesn't have anything to do with me. It it's only to do with God. And then he says, when you get through... And you begin to pray, take your motives and lay them against my kingdom agenda. And say, does this line up with the kingdom of God? 
Does this line up with what God is saying? And then begin to pray and make supplication with pure motives that is honorable by God, that God can honor. And then pray that you make it through the trials. Because I'm going to tell you, you're going to get some trials every day even when you're not looking for them. I mean, I was, I was having a holy hooting nanny today just thanking God for how good he was to me. And all of a sudden, boom, there was a trial. And all of a sudden, I could have been tempted. I mean, that woman was waving her hands. I know she's from South Louisiana because she was doing all that with her hands. I just really wanted to pull over and say, ma'am, what's wrong? Lord, help me to make it through the trials when somebody despitefully uses you. When somebody cheats you. When somebody's malicious against you. When somebody intentionally does you evil. God help me not to get in the flesh. And be led away into temptation. And boy that's easy preaching but hard living. If you've ever had your life wrecked. By somebody else's poor decisions. I'm telling you that's hard to do. It's one thing if you was the creator of the chaos. It's one thing if you sowed the wild oats. It's one thing if you was sowing bad seed and you're having to reap the crop. But when somebody else did it, and you're the beneficiary of it, and all of a sudden everything is falling apart and you're sitting there and you got to make a decision. I was thinking, I just had this conversation with somebody. They were telling me just how proud they were of our twin girls. I say, boy, those kids are killing me. And they say, yeah, it's rough with teenagers. I said, no, I'm teenagers. I'm pretty blessed with them. It's them little ones. That 2.0 was working us over. And when I look at those girls, I realize that they are where they are today because I had to make a decision in my life. And I can remember the day I had to make the decision. Lord, I'll serve you no matter what. I'll serve you when you're blessing me. And it seems like nothing can go wrong. And Lord, I'll serve you when it seems like nothing can go right. And I remember the day that I made that decision. And I said, Lord, you have been so good to me. I remember I said, Lord, I've got more on your side than I do the other. And I said, Lord, sink, swim, live, or die. I'm going to follow you. And I believe it's a result. I believe they are a result of my commitment to say, God, though all hell assail me, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Lord, though I walk through waters deep, trials fall across the way. Though sometimes the path seems rough and steep, see His footprints all the way. Jesus, 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 sweetest name I know, fills my every longing, keeps me singing as I go. That old hymn's. Got a little hop to it, melody. I call it from the boom chuck era, you know, boom chucka, boom chucka. <laughs> the melody does not fit that song. 
William Copper wrote that song after he was on an evangelistic crusade, left his wife and son at his mother-in-law and father-in-law's house. While he was off preaching, a house fire erupted and it took his wife and child and he lost his mind and sitting in a mental institution, he wrote that words, those words, though sometimes the path seems rough and steep, I see his footsteps all the way. Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, sweetest name I know, fills my every longing in a mental hospital, keeps me singing as I go. Lead us through the trials, navigate us around the temptation, because you are a big, big, big God. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. And then Jesus said, say amen. How are you praying? How are you waiting? How are you listening? Are you loving on God for who He is? I believe God's love language is words of affirmation. Because He says right here, Hallowed be thy name. Tell me. Tell me how much you love me. Tell me. Tell me. Tell me. To adorn God with praise the way you would trim your Christmas tree. Looking for the special ornament. Looking for that special word in your vocabulary. To describe how much you love him. Well, let me wrap up. How's your prayer life? There's nothing in your life that's so big. It's not under his feet. There's nothing too difficult for God. He who begun a good work in you will complete it. The Lord is my shepherd, which means I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Leads me beside the still waters. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, with all hell a selling me. I am confident that his rod and his staff will comfort me. And when men despitefully use me, he says he will prepare a table before me for me in the presence of my worst enemies. In that prayer, he says he anoints my head with oil. My cup runneth over. And surely the hound dogs of heaven, goodness and mercy, will chase you down all the days of your life. Maybe tonight you need to come to this altar.
and say, God, teach me how to pray. Don't let this be your prayer, but let it be the structure that you build your prayer on. Because earlier he said, avoid all vain and repetitious prayers. He never meant for this to be recited over and over and over and over again. He says, this is the model that all your prayers should be built upon. God, right now, just speak to our hearts. And Lord, this is a different sermon. I, I, Lord, you're doing something different. God, right here on a Saturday night, maybe you just want to start teaching us how to pray. Lord, we're never too old to learn how to pray more effectively, how to pray more fervently, how to trust you with all that we have. God, help us right now. Lord, help us to swallow our pride and have the courage like this one disciple did when he looked at you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and said, could you teach us how to do what you're doing? So that it's not empty. So that it's not self-centered. In Jesus' name.